So today we're on the last sermon of this uh, series in the parables in Luke's gospel. We've been viewing those parables or trying to allow Jesus questions about neighboring that are in the parable of the Good Samaritan, allowing those questions, who is my neighbor and how can I be neighbor to another, to kind of be the set of lenses that tint the hue by which we see all of these parables. What do they have to do with neighboring? What do they have to do with being a neighbor or treating another like a neighbor? And we are today in the parable of what's called the wicked tenants. And this is one of the last kind of story parables that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke. He heads for Jerusalem, or actually he's already in Jerusalem when he tells this parable, days away from his death. And so its own description of death as a theme is especially telling and poignant. I think that if we were to look at this parable in terms of neighboring, to talk about neighboring is to talk about uh, neighborhoods and who controls them, who sets or enforces their rules. And where there is a gathering of people, there is more often than not also a system of government a central committee, a homeowners association. (laughs) There is just something that that holds the ordering of that neighborhood in its hands and can potentially either become something that helps that neighborhood to thrive or potentially misuse its power and really turn that neighborhood into a potentially dark place. And so the parable is set in this context of the question of authority, of who's in charge of the neighborhood and who gets to say what the rules are. The religious aristocracy whom Jesus battles with throughout Luke's gospel, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders as Luke describes them, they're a little bit put off by and frankly a little petrified by Jesus' popularity. The people listen to Jesus, and, and over and over again, they say that one of the things they appreciate the most about him is that he speaks with authority. And that doesn't mean he's a jerk. It means quite the opposite. It means he says what he thinks is true without having to cite a whole bunch of footnotes to prove that it's true. He puts it forward in a straight way. And that's very different than what the religious aristocracy did because they based their authority on a series of people that went before them. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing at all wrong with that. But all of their discussions of faith and religion were based on the authority of Rabbi so-and-so who said this, or Rabbi so-and-so who said that, or, you know, on and on and on about citing the authorities. And Jesus never cited the authorities. He quoted scripture quite a bit, but he didn't participate in that kind of rabbinic citation of authority. And that put them off. And the fact that he spoke without those footnotes made Jesus generally a rather disruptive presence because in the midst of an illiterate society, which many of the people were, it was good to hear someone speak what was definitely in those authorities, but without all of the footnotes, so to speak. 
So Jesus is just generally a disruptive presence among the existing homeowners association, among the existing religious aristocracy in place in the day. And in order to kind of show some of that disruption, I want to start reading this parable in its context, which I'm going to begin with the cleansing of the temple in Luke 19, verse 45. So then Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there. And he said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And every day he was teaching in the temple, and the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people kept looking for a way to kill him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were spellbound by what they heard. And one day, as he was teaching the people in the temple and telling the good news, the chief priests and the scribes came with the elders and said to him, Tell us by what authority are you doing these things? Who is it? who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them, I will ask you a question and you tell me. Did the baptism of John come from heaven or was it of human origin? And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. Always the safe bet <laughs> to not have any independent recollection of that truth. <laughs> then Jesus said to them, well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and leased it to tenants and went to another country for a long time. And when the season came, he sent a slave to the tenants in order that they might give him his share of the produce of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Next he sent another slave. That one also they beat and insulted and sent away empty-handed. And he sent still a third, and this one also they wounded and threw out. And then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son, perhaps, and perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they discussed it among themselves and said, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, heaven forbid. But Jesus looked at them and said, what then does this text mean? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. And when the scribes and the chief priests realized that he had told this parable against them, they wanted to lay hands on him at that very hour, but they feared the people. Let's pray. Lord, bring us to that place of risking looking at our fears, our fears of letting go of control of the small worlds that we have created, our fears of trusting you to give us what we need, 
and usher us into your space. Just generally our fears of letting go of that to which we are grasping in the hopes that it will be our salvation. Help us to let go of our fears and relax into your invitation to life. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So coming up on 41 years of pastoral ministry, I'm doing a lot of reflecting, especially as I've announced my retirement in February, doing a lot of reflecting on the four churches where I have served. Two of those positions were in multiple staff churches, larger churches. Two of those positions were solo pastorates. I was in a about a 1,300-member church in Ventura, California, one of five associate pastors on the staff, and then solo pastor of a church of about 120 members in Pasadena, California for seven years, and then up here to Seattle where for 17 years I served at University Presbyterian Church, a place really big by comparison uh, with anything I had been in before, you know, 4,000 members and, and about 100 people on staff at its peak and 10 of us ordained Presbyterians. The staff was sort of a congregation you know, in and of itself in some ways. And then here to Emmanuel, and where I've been for 11 years now. And one of the things that I have noted in every place is that pastors and congregations very easily fall into the trap of describing their history in terms of the pastoral succession in that place. You know, we put pictures up like the pictures up out there and the narthex becomes this kind of hall of fame of pastoral succession, you know. All of us dressed, except in this particular case, all of us uh, are not dressed in the same way, uh, but dressed in our regalia and looking out confidently at the lens, declaring that we're a part of the rich history of the place. And, but congregations and pastors can come too close to saying something that really isn't true for the most part, because you cannot describe the history of any congregation merely by pointing to pastoral succession. I remember in the Michelinda Presbyterian in Pasadena that we had a 75th anniversary while I was there. I think it was the 75th, I can't remember. It might have been the 50th. Actually, the 50th was here, the 75th was there, that's right. And, um, and a, a woman in the church who was kind of one of the matriarchs of the church wrote a short history of the church. And basically, it was a couple of paragraphs about each of the five or six pastors that had served there and what they had done. And I have to confess to you that when I was at the big place, over there in Seattle, that the staff, because we were so large at times, would fall into a kind of feeling almost that the congregation was more of an impediment to our ministry than a participant <laughs> in it. Because we were about the business of bringing about our strategies and our visions for the ushering in of the kingdom of God through that place. and forgot that somehow this was also the gathered sheep who just were wanting to worship God. So I brought a picture today. Uh, it says more than a thousand words, but uh, if you can look closely at who's at the back of that procession line. Darth Vader, that's right. <laughs> that we, 
we wear our vestments, uh, we attain to some kind of sense of ourselves as the holy, and yet we very rarely make room for the fact that Brother Darth is actually a big part of our awareness, uh, that there's a dark side to ecclesiastical history. There's a, there's a dark side to this sense of, of control that we who are charged with being stewards of a particular congregation can fall into a place where the dark side of the force is in, in charge. And people are perfectly happy with us being a part of the procession nevertheless. So you can take that down now. Um, <laughs> but there's a dark side in church history, and anyone who studied church history knows that there's a dark side in it. And this idea that somehow a church's identity can be described primarily and almost solely in terms of its pastoral succession is, I think, something that's kind of from the pit of hell. That church and congregation should never be spoken of by pastors using merely a first-person singular possessive pronoun. Because it's never true. No church in which I've ever served has ever been my church. Or my congregation. Or my people. I have lived and served among them. And the extent to which we ever fall over too much into that first person singular possessive pronoun, both pastor and people are in trouble. The body of Christ, here's the theme for today, <laughs> the body of Christ belongs, guess to who? Christ. <laughs> the body of Christ belongs to Christ. And this truth is what had the religious aristocracy around Jesus a bit on edge. Because they weren't certain that he was that cornerstone. They weren't certain that he should be built, everything should be built around the message, the word that he was bringing. For he seemed to be claiming ownership in their minds of what they assumed themselves to be in charge. And Jesus, more often than not, politely, but very, very directly, says, I'm not going to bow to your ecclesiastical rules or play the game like you want it to be played because this whole thing belongs to God. And John the Baptist had said the same thing so that Jesus would refer to John the Baptist as he was basically saying, hey, John and I are kind of on the same page here. We're pointing to something bigger than ourselves even, because all of this belongs to God. You're all neighbors in God's neighborhood, and you're not the HOA who gets to set the rules. And so he does that temple cleansing to say, hey, this house is about something a lot bigger than what you've turned it into. It's about something a lot bigger than enterprise. It's about something a lot bigger than selling forgiveness, so to speak. And so Jesus asserts this in an even more poignant way by telling a story. He tells a story and then he offers some teaching or exposition of, of what that story means. 
So first he tells the story of this landholder. Obviously the landholder as we see it is kind of a, almost a, a metaphor for the divine figure, for God himself. But the story is told about a very practical reality of a landholder basically needing someone to tend his vineyard and he goes away for a long time and the tenants do what they're told to do and when the time comes for the landholder to collect his portion uh, that is to either get the rent from the the produce that they have sold or to get a part of the produce itself when it comes time for him to collect he sends slaves to attend to this matter and as the story goes on it's pretty clear what happens he he's persistent enough to send three slaves they're all beaten up and cast out of the vineyard saying don't come back here uh, you're not going to get anything from us and so the landholder finally sends his son thinking that that authority will be enough to get the tenants to respond positively so he fails to collect, and those three from whom he fails to collect are just like the prophets that God sent. You know, Jesus earlier on weeps over Jerusalem and weeps that they kill the prophets and stone those whom God sends to them. And then the son himself in the parable is killed and thrown out and body disposed of, I suppose. And Jesus says, so what's going to happen to those tenants? Well the landholder is going to come and take care of them <laughs> and get what is his. The truth of who actually owns the land will be revealed, in other words, and the tenants will be shown to be just that, tenants, participants, those who enjoy the fruit of the land, but, but who do not own it. And then he teaches. And he teaches using an Old Testament image of the cornerstone from Psalm 118 and quotes from that psalm in the teaching uh, that uh, follows this parable. And this is also an image that's used in four other places in the New Testament. It's used in one of the other Gospels, and then it's also used in Acts when Peter preaches in Acts 4, and it's used in 1 Peter, his, his first epistle. So Peter himself really liked this image of Jesus as the cornerstone. The stone rejected, as the scriptures talk about it, is actually the cornerstone. Actually that stone, not the foundation stone, but the cornerstone is architecturally a little bit different. It's the stone with the truest angles. It's the stone that determines the shape of the building and, and the trueness of the, the walls to a a particular angle, the, you know, in other words, it's, it's a good 90 degree angle and it's flat on top. I mean, it's, it's the thing that the stonecutters work the hardest to establish because it, it sets the tone for the entire house. It's the thing around which it is built and on which it is built, but it's the true thing. It's the true thing that can never be false. And it's the thing that if you try to reject it, you're either going to trip over it or you're going to fall down after you trip or it's going to fall on you and break you to pieces if you try to destroy it. You can't make it not the truth is what Jesus is saying. The stone rejected therefore is actually the cornerstone. 
the stone killed or apparently killed and thrown away is actually unkillable. The true stone on which the building is built cannot be denied if you do, you'll be in trouble because the truth will out, the truth will show itself to be true, even if you try to eradicate the truth. So go ahead and try. <laughs> go ahead and try and try to take ownership of it. You are at best only stewards of something that does not belong to you. And things would go so much better if you saw yourselves as stewards and neighbors rather than owners and rulers. Gratefully receive and enjoy the gifts God has given rather than try to possess what you will never really own. That's the point. And it's hard for me to work with this parable and not see its parallels in our history. Not see our, its parallels in the history of colonization and settlement of what we call the new world. Seizing and pushing people off the land because it was there for the taking and claiming ownership of People who, for the most part, had no concept of ownership were in possession, not really possession, but occupation of the land because they themselves probably didn't see themselves as possessors as much as they saw themselves as participants in what was going on in the midst of it. They had no concept of ownership, but instead saw themselves as participants in and fellow occupiers with the living things that were there. And the arrogance and audacity of believing that through our ownership, we could do so much more with it than they were and take so much more from it than they did is itself an interesting sense of what is reality. But all we ever are, and all we ever will be, all of us, is stewards. And we lose a lot, I think, when we lose sight of this truth. Because everything we own, and I use that word in quotation marks, everything that we own will one day pass out of our hands, and death has a way of resetting things. There's a deep tragedy in both of these stories. I hope we get it. And there's really three stories being told, the illustration story that I've just used about colonization, but there's the story that Jesus tells about the, the owner and the tenants, and that's just deeply tragic, of the patience of the owner and the incredible arrogance of the tenants. Or there's the even more tragic story of the one who came with arms open and said, come unto me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest, and who was put to death on a cross because he was such a threat to the existing order. There's a deep tragedy and it's not just only a tragedy of unjust death, but it's also the tragedy of the failure of the tenants 
to see a limiting truth, a limiting truth that could actually free them to enjoy abundant life. It's so much more liberating to live lives where we are stewards and participants in what ultimately belongs to God. To build on this cornerstone rather than try to reject it and destroy it so that we can do more and better things with what God has given us. That sense of ownership of what will never be ours and trying to take ownership of that thing that will never be ours. And so Jesus says it well. Brothers and sisters, it is the Father's good pleasure to grant you the kingdom, to enjoy the abundance of the cattle on a thousand hills that he owns, to open wide our mouths and savor the finest of the wheat, and to satisfy ourselves with the honey from the rock. We can never really own what isn't ours, but we can receive the gift of living all of life under the banner of our Creator's steadfast love and gratefully enjoy the abundance that He created for us to share. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see that we are stewards and liberate us through that knowledge. Liberate us to taste and see how good you are. Liberate us to enjoy the fruits of what you have given us. Liberate us to share abundantly out of that fruit with our world because we know that it all belongs to you. Free us to be people who are not worried about being in control, but are grateful to participate in what you have created. Free us to be loved and so learn how to love, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.